When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, this is Hal Blaine, and you're listening to the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Pantheon Podcasts presents Deeper Digs in Rock. Part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music. Culture. Technology. And rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Everybody needs somebody. Hello, diggers. Christian Swain here, the rock and roll archaeologist, coming to you from the San Francisco headquarters of Pantheon Podcasts. And I need you you, you. Breaking news. Okay, we have another great new podcast uh, filled with more rock and roll knowledge and creamy goodness. I told you the Baker's Dozen wouldn't last very long. Our newest edition is called Make It Stop, a bad music podcast. Make It Stop is a podcast dedicated to dissecting terrible albums, hosted by Boston musicians Heather Mack and Mike Dunn, and featuring a variety of quirky guests from the Boston arts and music scene. Make It Stop braves the putrid depths of the worst albums ever made. By the end, uh, you'll be begging them for more, uh, while also screaming, make it stop. <laughs> please, please go take a listen to this wonderfully funny show and, uh, you know, let us know what you think. Wow. Uh, Pantheon podcasts are infecting cities all over North America. We have shows out of, uh, well, San Francisco, obviously, L.A., New York, Charlotte, and Toronto, Canada, which makes us multinational, and uh, now Boston. I'm sure we will be adding cities from all over the world before we are done. Quick reminder to check us out on Facebook at the RNRAP, Instagram at RNR Archaeology, and on Twitter at RNR Archaeology as well. Uh, if you already are a part of the scene, um, you know, uh, do us one big favor, and that's tell a friend. Also, Patreon is there for those who want to shower us with cash. Uh, or, you know, again, or really just help us out with the overhead costs of getting uh, all of these shows off the ground and into your earbuds. Go to patreon.com backslash rock and roll podcast. This week, uh, get a little help from our uh, good friends at CBD Vermont, which partners with organic farms in the great state of Vermont. 
uh, to produce organically grown hemp used in full spectrum extracts available for sale at cbdvermont.com. Use the code DDIR to get 15% off all of their products. That's DDIR, Deeper Digs in Rock. Uh, there are a lot of CBD products out there, so, you know, how do you know what you're getting? Well, CBD Vermont tests all of its extracts to ensure you're getting the right amount of CBD and other cannabinoids with no unwanted toxins. Plus, each batch is traced to the Vermont farm where it was grown and the hemp cultivar that was extracted. They've recently launched an online store where you can buy Vermont-made CBD products, including oils, capsules, edibles, and topicals that have been fully vetted by the staff at CBD Vermont. Um, some of them have been vetted by me, as a matter of fact. So, you know, last week I ended up with some uh, uh, fairly serious uh, back pain. Uh, it sucked. Yeah, yeah. It happens every once in a while, uh, especially if my band Tin Man plays uh, a gig on concrete. Yeah, see, there's no give on concrete, um, so the next morning can be pretty rough. So I woke up, and I used the CBD Sore Muscle Rub from uh, CBD Vermont, uh, and a few hours later, swear to God, the pain was gone. Um, I kept it going for a couple of days, but it never returned. Go to CBDVermont.com and use the code DDIR at checkout to get 15% off. Okay, that's it for this week. Let's get to our guest. We live in a political world. Love don't have any place. We live in times where men commit crimes and crime don't have a face. We live in a political world. Icicles hanging down. Wedding bells ring and angels sing and clouds cover up the ground. This week, my diggers, we get to talk with super engineer and producer Mark Howard. Mark just released a book called Listen Up, recording music with Bob Dylan, Neil Young, U2, R.E.M., The Tragically Hip, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Tom Waits, and so many more. Mark most famously worked alongside Daniel Lanois as engineer before moving into the producer's chair himself. As you will hear, he was the right guy for an incredible job, uh, mostly finding unique places uh, to turn into recording studios for some of the biggest names in rock and roll. Coming out of Canada in the mid-80s, Lanois shipped Mark down to New Orleans to find a cool space, equip it with all that would be needed so they could work on the Neville Brothers' seminal 1989 album, Yellow Moon. And during the recording, uh, our rock and roll esteemed Nobel laureate, Mr. Dylan, came by to hear their take on his song, uh, With God on Our Side, and the haunting Aaron Neville's voice, coupled with the production, convinced uh, Bobby uh, he needed to make his next album with Mark and Dan. And uh, with that, Oh Mercy came about. 
it really took off from there. Mark would find all kinds of interesting places to make unique and atmospheric studio settings to get the best out of the best, including the dilapidated old mansions uh, in the Big Easy, uh, a house uh, in a cliff in Cabo San Lucas, Mexico, an old rundown schoolhouse in Bodega Bay, an old Spanish language theater uh, in Oxnard, and a silent movie palace in Silver Lake, California. All of them came with names to invoke the imagination Emla, Kingsway, Birdhouse, Teatro, Paramore, etc. Another interesting accoutrement to these magical places was the uh, unusual assortment of classic and vintage motorcycles. Uh, Mark is into the big bikes. Um, he's the guy to get Dylan back on a bike after his infamous 1966 accident in upstate New York. You'll hear many of the details to these stories, places, and playthings as we dive into Mark's book. So... Let's get to it, diggers. I give you Mark Howard. I'm fabulously rich. Come on, just let's go. She kind of bit her lip. Jeez, I don't know. But I can guarantee. Welcome to Deeper Dixon Rock, Mark Howard. How 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 are you feeling today? I'm doing great today. It's a beautiful sunny day up here in Canada, and uh, and enjoying life today. Yeah, great. yeah. And, and let's establish right out of the gate here. Well, I think you were born in Britain, but you were raised in Canada. Yeah. So yeah, I was born in Manchester, England, and uh, my parents immigrated to Canada when I was four. So uh, I kind of grew up Canadian. But then I only uh, stayed in Canada till I was 20, and then I got kind of got out of here. Yeah, and then, you're all over um, the world, right? Right. right. And then uh, yeah, then then my trip started. Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. So so why write a book now about all your experiences uh, producing and engineering some of the biggest names in music over the last 30 years? Yeah. Well, it's, uh, I've been going nonstop, and I've never looked back at my life. And uh, about a yeah, year you're and a half a forward, ago, forward-thinking kind of guy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when I make records with people, they always ask me, what was it like to work with Neil Young? How about Bob Dylan? And then Tom Waits. And so I have all these <laughs> stories that I tell from all the sessions. That are, some of them are funny, some of them are tragic. And, and so after I've been telling all these people, everybody's like, you got to write a book about this. This is like crazy yeah. stuff. And, yeah. and like, if you don't, you have to document this. This is very important. So um, I ended up, uh, kind of like started, uh, uh, I asked, was asked to do like a little bio for like a website to put a website together. And so like, um, so I started writing and so I couldn't stop once I started. And so I started to dedicate every morning, um, uh, till noon to write. And, and what was the way I work is, uh, I kind of stream like right out of my, 
mind onto the paper or onto the computer or whatever. And I, so I don't use capitals and I don't use any punctuation. And so I would send every day. I would the stream, send, stream of consciousness. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So I would, I would send this to my brother who's a writer and he's an artist in London, England. And so, and he would, he would say, Hey, this is really good. This is, this is really exciting. You know, send me another page. And then, so I'd send them, you know, the next day or whatever. And so we started to assemble and I did it all chronologically as I could remember and kind of went through it and had to like re-listen to some things and had to look at photos to identify some other things. And, and then I had to ask some friends, you know, some technical questions about how big reels were. I, Cause I, I could have swore I was using these big, huge 14 inch reels on the Bob Dylan uh, time out of mine record, but yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, so I wasn't sure was it the twelve or were they fourteen? So <laughs> my friend Fred says, yeah, they would have been fourteens, and I said, okay, thanks for the reminder. So so I kind of had to like dig in deep deeper on on some of these things because some things had slipped my mind. Because after working on analog tape, and then you move to digital. Um, you know, you start to forget certain things that, you know, you did on analog oh, yeah. that you could only do on analog yeah. that you can do on digital yeah. and back and forth. So, yes, it was kind of started off as, you know, writing something about my life and then it turned into, you know, many pages and then it turned into, you know, wow, this is like enough for a book. And so I, I kind of shopped it around to some people and I found a couple of publishers and they said, wow, these are really exciting stories. But you know, like uh, you got a you got an acorn here, but you got to grow it up into a big tree. So I kind of went back and worked with a girl here in Canada, and we did an intro on kind of how how I grew up, and we did a kind of out outlog outro kind of part of the book on kind of like you know uh, my looking back at everything kind of thing, and my descriptions of you know uh, how these people work and stuff like that. That you know until you write all this stuff down, you don't start to realize that how peculiar some of these people are you know because you know uh, bob dylan only likes to work at night and neil young only likes to work three days before the full moon and <laughs> iggy only likes to work nine to five and you know so everybody's got their own quirky ways and so it's uh, it's something you don't realize until you kind of put it all down and then start to look at it you know? so it's, yeah it's, it's a it's been a crazy life you know yeah, so you know, I, I have to ask, you know, and I, I want to let our listeners, so we we call them diggers, know that you know you've recently yeah. gone through a, a cancer scare. Uh, everything's good. You're, I think you, you've gone through a, a two year process, and uh, and it's all behind yeah. you now. Um, did did that yeah. have something to do with kind of saying, you know, geez, you know, I don't I don't know how this is going to end. So I want to get this stuff out, or or was that just yeah. just happened to be the door? So it was part of the impetus then. It was. It was all part of it. Like I had started the book before it and so I had a lot of it kind of done but I had to kind of finish it through the treatment and and write kind of you know kind of a little finish some uh, of the ideas through the book to make it all flow properly but uh, definitely um, a lot of it was done while I was on this cancer treatment uh, for it's called immune therapy that I was on for um, this skin cancer that I had so uh, melanoma cancer which yeah. which I had yeah. so it it gotten it got really bad where it spread to my liver and it spread to my spleen and then ended up spreading to my brain. So, oh, so um, it really so, metastasized. Okay. Yeah. 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 It must've been, must've been really scary. Yeah. It was very aggressive and people didn't think I was going to make it. And, and then I got offered to meet with this doctor here in Canada, who's the head melanoma specialist for, uh, in North America. And so he took me in right away and, 
he got me on this treatment. And so he put me on this immune therapy treatment only works on 40% of the people they try it on. And so, uh, I was lucky that I was one of those people. And so it, uh, it, 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 it worked. And, you know, just right after this last Christmas, I got the green light where they were doing, um, they couldn't find any more, uh, cancer in me. They're, you know, doing these needle biopsies and they were finding no more, uh, uh, cancer in my tumors. And so like, I go like, this is really crazy. And so I just come back from Jamaica and swimming in the ocean, smoking some gaja. So I don't know if that helped any, but, but they definitely couldn't find it once I was back. So, well, uh, I, well I, maybe, maybe it was the uh, Jamaican ganja and not the immunotherapy, huh? Yeah, I, you never know. It's like, hey, <laughs> maybe that just topped it off. Did. Maybe that maybe they just really killed I, off the last of it. So, <laughs> I I hope so. I hope, I hope that's some part of it. Right, 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 right. So you know, as we said, you were born in Manchester. You grew up in Canada, and uh, you know, many yeah. many of the best stories uh, in the book are working with Canadian legends like Neil Young and Joni Mitchell. Um, but before yeah. we get to that. Tell, you know, tell us how you got into the music game in the first place. Um, you know, I had quit school early on, like when I was 15, 16 years old. I was at school and I ended up, uh, my guidance teacher called me in because I'd been missing classes and stuff. And she uh, she said, yeah, you're going to be nothing but a criminal and end up in jail. If I keep this up. So I, I, know, said, I know I that quit. story. I know that story. So. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I ended up. You know, I couldn't really do much because, you know, I was so young. So uh, I wanted to be an architect because I was really good at drawing and art was my best subject. And so I thought maybe I'll get a job as a, a kind of an architect. And so I found, funny enough, I found a, a firm in my town called Howard Mark Architect. And I thought, no way. Wow, my name is Mark Howard. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's perfect. I'll get a job there. Right. So I took the guy, all these drawings I did, of all these kind of futuristic homes and he goes, these are amazing. He goes, you go back to school and get your grade 12 and I'll definitely hire you. And I thought, well, I'm not going back to school. So I ended up getting a job as a layout artist uh, at 16 years old for a monument firm doing tombstones. Headstones, and, right, right. Headstones, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I would do all of the custom drawings, like if a Hell's Angel guy came in, they wanted the, the skull head with wings on their tombstone. I would freehand draw it and you know uh, and then I, I would be able to kind of do all these things that the people that own this uh, company were worked off stencils so they couldn't do any custom work so i became their main custom guy to do all these custom stones so yeah so it became uh you know i did that until i was 19 and able to go on the road here in canada and so uh, i was a drummer like at 15 years old in my mom's basement and we would, uh, you know, I kind of had a club down there. It was going to, everybody in the neighborhood would always come down there and we'd have jams. Mm -hmm. So it, it kind of it started in my my parents' basement where this whole thing kind of kind of blossomed out of there. And then, uh, and then I ended up going up on the road working for uh, Canadian legends. I worked for this guy, King Biscuit Boy, who was a Canadian legendary harmonica player. And he made records with the meters and, you know, like it was... He had an amazing history, and he was up there with like James Cotton and all these big blues guys. Oh yeah! So I gotten gotten the experience of all the blues and all those songs and Muddy Waters, and all, like I didn't know who these people were before until I kind of like got trained by this guy um, Richard Newell, who was King Biscuit Boy, and so he taught me like you know who's 
you know, little Walter and so all this amazing oh, stuff. Oh, you've got so, a real education. So that all came into play when I worked with Dylan and I bring up little Walter or anything like that. And so he was amazed that I knew all these blues guys from that time. And so, you know, Dylan was saying, well, why can't I have a record that sounds like those cool blues records? I think yeah. you can. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. But yeah. uh, so really, you got lucky. You hooked up yep. and uh, you you went across the country and, and you learned the sound game. Uh, were you doing mixing? Yep. Is that where you primarily were yep. doing that? Yep. Yeah. I, yeah, I worked for a PA and lighting company. So I was always sent out, you know, with a PA and lights to do, you know, um, shows and concerts and bars and stuff like that. So I'd gotten, you know, like working with you know, PA equipment and sound boards and stuff like that uh, just gave me the education for when I stepped into the studio, I was already knowledgeable uh, with a lot, how the signal flows and, you know, um, mm-hmm. from microphone into preamp into the recorder. And so I had already had that. Um, so I was on the road and what happened was I got in a motorcycle accident and the guy hit me head on. And so oh, I shit. flew over the car and hurt my back. And so, uh, I didn't break anything, but I was just traumatized, and so I wasn't able to go back out on the road. Because part of the gig is, you know, you got to load the truck and you got to move oh, yeah. stuff in, set it up. So, you know, it was a very physical. And this job. is in Canada, three sixty-five. Yeah, we yeah. we've spoken to Randy Bachman a couple of times, and uh, right. you know, one, one thing Randy said is that in Canada, you know, uh, those winners will uh, separate the players from the has-beens. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yes, it was it was an experience that you know, although it was a tragedy, it ended up being kind of the next stepping stone in my oh, life. Goodness, yeah. So I got this job at a studio called Grant Avenue Studio. It's in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, and it's where Daniel Lanois had built it with his brother, and Dan had done a lot of the Brian Eno ambient records there, and oh. brought you two there a couple of times. And so it was kind of a famous studio here in Canada. And so I ended up getting a job there. Dan had sold it to his best friend, Bob Deutsch. And so I worked with Bob Deutsch. And so I walked in there and I said, you know, the government's offering this program where they'll pay half my wage if you pay the other half of the wage and let me work here. And, uh, you know, I'll, you know, I'll make coffee for you guys. And so they showed me how to make the, how the coffee machine worked. And within the first six months, I was the head chief engineer there working wow. all the night sessions. And so I was doing like Canadian country uh syndicated radio shows to you know to you know late night records and you know all these kind of crazy records that were coming through there from punk to country okay so how did you go from coffee boy to uh you know making all the hip records within six months definitely knew how to blend and 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 mix music because i've been doing it on on the road and so and i was also very technical at also and so i was very good at plugging stuff in so i could set the whole band up plug everything in and have it ready to record before you knew it so and usually in recording studios it's a slow process and people drag their feet and but you know because i i treat everything like a live show so it's like if we're going on everything ready yeah so uh i think that impressed the owner and then so he started you know giving me a project here or there just kind of see how it worked and you know, the next thing I know, I was like, you know, doing all these big records for, for at the time, you know. So, yeah, and yeah. so they ended up putting me on the session with this guy who I didn't know. So uh, it was, it was really going. your can-do attitude that really separated exactly, you out from yes. some of the other guys that were hanging around the studio at the time, huh? Exactly, yeah. 
So and it wasn't until they put me on this one session with this guy, Daniel Lanois, who I didn't know at the time or who he was or, or who he worked with. And so they put me on that session. And so I, I did these sessions with him. And, and so he was always uh, trying to stump me, you know, like he'd say, okay, we're going to put a, we're going to do a guitar part now and put it on uh, track 12 and, and let me know when it's done. I said, it's already done. And he goes, what? And I said, yeah, I heard you guys talking about you were t- going to do a guitar part. So I set it up. So it's ready to roll. Go. You know, and so ah. he, was, he was impressed. I was always a, a step ahead of him. Uh-huh. And so he, he thought that was a, a cool thing. And so I ended up, you know, working with him for, you know, like a week. And then I got a phone call from him saying, hey, would you want to come to New Orleans and help me make a record with a band called the Neville Brothers? <laughs> and I said, right, right, I said, right. yeah. And yeah. I didn't know who the Neville Brothers were. Uh-huh. I thought he said Everly Brothers. You know, I thought, oh, Everly <laughs> oh, Brothers. Yeah. Okay, I great. know those guys. Yeah, yeah. 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 Are they still yeah, around? Wow. So, yeah, 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 exactly. So yeah, I was this, is, this is mid-80s. This is mid-80s here. Yeah, we're talking about. Exactly. Right? So right. it wasn't until I got to New Orleans, uh, the Neville Brothers and their like, you know, there's, they're kind of like a funk band and, you know, they open shows with the Grateful Dead. And you know, I'd seen them going to shows when I went to see the Grateful Dead and didn't realize that they were the band. And so it was, it was kind of a cool experience that I realized who they were, like once I got there kind of thing. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so, now so, you- so the deal was, yeah, the deal was, is I, I was to make the record with, with uh, the Nevilles and it was going to last six months. You know, I had to, go down there, find a studio, bring the gear in, set it all up, and then Dan would come back and we'd make the record. And that was supposed to be the job. And then Bob, who ran the studio here in Canada, said, if you leave, you don't have a job left. So I said, I'll take the chance. Yeah, and so that, good for you. That that six months turned into 30 years of work, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. So um, you're an engineer first, and then you find yeah. yourself more and more in the producer's chair. But, you know, so yeah. for our audience, let's let's talk a little bit about the difference uh, between those two roles and then what your style is and how that works for you. Right. Um, all right. So usually an engineer is the person that kind of is the technical person uh, out of the uh, the group. So they're really responsible for recording the band and they're responsible for uh, plugging the microphones in and getting it all up. And so, so they're, yeah, and they're any, the ones that actually piece of equipment that's being used uh, yeah, in there, including exactly. you know, the, so, the outboard gear, uh, reverbs, yeah. echoes, uh, and what have you yeah. uh, actually more often than not, you're the ones that has the hands on the board, moving the faders and, uh, and the yeah. pots and all that. Right. Exactly. So that that was the job to deal with all that stuff. Um, you know, in the day, the producer's job was meant to be to you know manage budgets and bring in musicians and stuff like that. But uh, the producer's job has changed in my world. At least, you know, as the engineer, you're you're being told by the producer, okay, we want to go for this sound. Can you set this up this way? And they were the ones that had the knowledge musically and technically also too, because they've already kind of been around the block so they knew how to get certain things and had their own kind of production techniques so with a producer as i you know witnessed growing up yeah, the, the, the old george job, martin the old george martin style if you will yeah exactly so it was you know you would see musical direction from the producer them saying you know okay we have uh, this melody here and we like to put this melody in the intro the choruses and the ending 
and all and these are the background parts we want to do so it's all about music for really for the producer so where the engineer is the guy that takes these uh, ideas that they have and he's got to make it come out of those speakers so me me being what, what I do is you know I'm the engineer and I'm also the producer and I'm also the mixer so I know exactly the sounds I'm going for so when I'm usually playing back the song to the everybody i've already figured out which reverbs i want on what what vocal sounds i want and uh how i want it to sound in the blend and so either if they if we're working in a controlled studio like normal with the glass control room they they come in and they get to hear exactly what it would sound like on the record they don't have to think about what what would it be like with reverb or you know or how it would sound um because usually that's the way again you're you're a step ahead you're a step ahead of them Yeah. yeah Mm-hmm. Exactly. So um, my my planning is and still thinking ahead to oh, okay when I mix this I'm going to have these background vocals they're going to come in dry and then they're going to go wet and then they end up breathing you know and so there's all these kind of crazy ideas you can have that will work and so I, I kind of come up with these depending on the song and how the song is laid out so and I also do arrangements where uh, I do kind of like I'll trim the fat on some songs where certain sections will be too long and we'll just shorten it to four bars or to a two bar intro and you know just kind of like so those listeners not kind of like you're not losing the attention of the listener so a lot of that is in editing and kind of like working you know the arrangements out so it's you know it goes from musical to arranging to you know uh knowing uh, how to get these kind of sounds so great yeah, so that's the kind of difference yeah, yeah. All right. So, uh, you know, late 80s, uh, you get this opportunity to go to NOLA, uh, New Orleans, to work with the Neville Brothers, what will become their 1989 album, Yellow Moon. Uh, And uh, I think uh, Daniel Lenoir brings you down there and says, uh, "Okay, go find a place. So, yeah, it was not only go find a place, but I'm leaving tomorrow. Yeah, it's all up to you. To make the record. (laughs) Yeah. Go find a place. Go buy a car. You know, have it all set up in a month. I'm going to Brian Eno's studio to do some work on my solo record. I'll be back. And so, yeah. So, yeah. So I had to be like a real estate agent. I had to be like a gear importer because I had to import the consulate from England. And I had to bring the um, tape recorder in from Canada and buy all the uh, outboard gear from New York. And, and then set all this stuff up and find the location and then be the, you know, the banker, kind of like, you know, manage the money and. So it was like I, I did everything. I wore many hats, as we say. You you ran the operations uh, top to bottom uh, with yep. a very limited budget, I think. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I was I was only given like you know, $1,200, I think, a, a month to find a location. And so it ended up, I found like a really Oh, you cool, found an amazing uh, place. Uh, what ends yeah, up yeah. becoming Emla Studios, right? Yeah, exactly. So the... Um, and so it just kind of carried on from there. Uh, after the the Neville brothers, uh, Bob Dylan kind of came through town and uh, and asked Lanois if he produced his next record. And so that turned into oh, okay, well let's find a new place. And so we thought, well let's go to New Mexico, and there's there's a cool place there. And so I got sent on a kind of a search mission, and I went to New Mexico and ended up finding like George O'Keefe's old home and. And I thought, well, this would be an amazing place. It was very musical. It was big. And so 
I came back and I showed uh, Lanois these uh, videos that I'd taken of the place. He goes, this is amazing. Let me call Bob and tell him we got a location. So he goes on the phone, calls Bob Dylan, says, look, we got an amazing location in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and, you know, we'll make the record there. And Bob goes, Santa Fe? I can't work in Santa Fe. And Dan goes, why? He goes, well, because of the altitude. It's too high. It's hard to breathe. You know, like when you're singing, yeah. when you're a singer, yeah. it's like, oh, it's yeah. hard to hard to take breath. Yeah. So we ended up saying, all right, well, let's just make the record here in New Orleans below sea level. How's that? Sound? <laughs> and so he, he loved the idea of making it in New Orleans. And yeah. so yeah. it, it kind of like, so that was the starting of Oh Mercy and how, how that developed and made it in this beautiful kind of like Victorian mansion and in the Garden District in New Orleans. And so it was, yeah, before, uh, it was, now, before it was, we get there, yeah. the, a couple of these people are going to keep coming up. Um, you know, obviously, yeah. uh, Daniel Lanois, you guys have this uh, ongoing relationship to the book. It's a little uh, a love and hate relationship or more accurately, it's like brothers. Um, so yeah. I take it you guys are still working together in some capacity. It seems like it's gone for the entire 35 years. Is that right? It goes on and off, and so we're, we're, we're on a little bit of a break because I get sick, and so uh, I just saw him a month ago or whatever, and so we're just kind of, uh, he's working on his own world, kind of his own music, so, and so I'm just kind of sneaking back in uh, right now, so, uh, but yeah, over the years, it's like, it ended up, I started, I worked for him, and then at a certain point of our, you started of my career, with yeah with him and yeah. i started supplying the locations and he supplied the gear we split the time 50 50 and so i made my records he made his records and under the same location and so that kind of kept going and then that kind of fizzled out and then we didn't work together for 10 years and then uh he ended up getting a couple of invitations to make a couple of records and he called me back up and he said hey would you mind making a record uh with uh, Robert Plant and Alison Krauss, and, and we're also <laughs> going to do the soundtrack to a Billy Bob Thornton movie, yeah. and I'll give you this much money. And, and I said, yeah, sure, no problem. I'd love to do that. You know, uh, I was a huge fan as a kid. Oh, yeah. So that was one of my dreams, to make a record with uh, Robert Plant. And so that started, and, you know, Robert came in by himself because Alison was sick, and then, you know, I thought what we got out of Robert was amazing, and then Allison came in, and she... She didn't dig the vibe. She just wanted to make kind of like bluegrass type songs. And Lanwa was pushing her to sing his songs. And I think she got upset. And so that whole thing just got canned. So um, it's a shame. And I said, well, Dan, why don't you, why don't we just continue with the Robert and, you know, make a solo record for him? Yeah. And he goes, he said, nah, well, he goes, if you'll reunite with Led Zeppelin, I'll do it. But other than that, I don't want to just make a solo record for him. Yeah. And like, oh, man. So yeah. I was yeah. totally disappointed. But then... It's at, still a good story to talk about. Yeah. and But at that point, you know, uh, Neil Young had rang. And so yeah. uh, I, I got traded out for a Neil Young record. So well, that now, was... Now you're was, really getting ahead was, of me yeah. here. Now you're real. We'll, yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll get we'll get to uh, to Lenoise here in a bit. But um, all, right. all uh, right. So back to Nola, and yeah. uh, I want to talk about another big passion of yours uh, besides music, and that is motorcycles, and especially antique yeah. motorcycles. And you know what's funny is now we bring Bob Dylan in because uh, I think this starts with uh, you and and Lanois have a choice to make an album for David Bowie or an album for Bob Dylan, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So Dan came to me and said, you know, I have these two records on the table and what do you think? You know, it's either David Bowie or 
you know, uh, Bob Dylan. And <laughs> what like a right choice. Away, what I a just, choice. <laughs> without even thinking, I said Bob Dylan because lyrically it doesn't get any better. But I was a bigger fan of David Bowie, you know, growing up and, you know, uh, listening to all those great records, you know, that he had put out, Aladdin Insane and Changes. And, you know, those are all my favorite records of the time. And so I was familiar with Dylan, but I wasn't like the biggest fan of Dylan because. It was a generation just before, before me that was yeah. a huge, Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I knew kind of down in my heart that Dylan was like, you know, more iconic than anybody on the planet. So it was like, if Jimi Hendrix liked him, like, this guy must be special, you know? So, so I said, make let's make a record with Dylan. It would be way better. And so he ended up, you know, um, Dylan came through New Orleans and he uh, invited us to a show at the... Uh, at the zoo there he was doing and we got invited back onto his bus after the show. And, you know, he said, uh, that Bono had recommended Dan to, uh, make a record with him. And so, and then he said, well, what are you guys doing here? And he said, we're making a record with the Neville brothers. And he goes, Oh yeah. Well, what's that like? And Dan said to him, well, why don't you come by the studio tomorrow and check it out? We've done two of your songs, Hollis Brown and God on our side. And so Dylan said, all right, I'll come by. And so the next day he shows up at the studio and, we play him Hollis Brown. He just kind of nods his head, didn't say anything. But then we play him the seven-minute version of God on Our Side. Yeah, wow. Wow. Yeah. And Aaron Neville singing it. Oh, it was just like, it's, it was, it's it was like gospel, yeah. you know? Yeah. 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 So so he's like, wow, okay, I think I think that was the thing that sunk him into making a record with Dan. Uh, so after that, Dan, him and Dan went in the kitchen, they talked, and, you know, Dan walked him out, and Dan came back in and said, well, looks like we're making a record with Dylan. And so that's kind of how it all started with him. So now you get your first chance of recording uh, rock and roll's only Nobel laureate uh, for what will become the 1989 album, Oh Mercy. So now you you guys um, were at EMLA. And and do me a favor real quick and explain what EMLA was and why it was special. Right. Uh, Well, EMLA Court was a five-story apartment building right next to the Columns Hotel, which is the most prestigious hotel on St. Charles Avenue in New Orleans. So there was this like beautiful old uh, apartment building beside it that said for sale. And so I'd been looking at all these other locations and nothing looked perfect. But this apartment building was special because each floor was one apartment. And it was like, you know, they were huge at like 5,000 square feet per floor. And so I ended up with the real estate agent. I said, well, can you approach the owner of this building to offer that we'll pay all the money up front and see if we can do a six month stretch in there? Because doesn't look like he's going to sell it anytime soon because it's been on the market for a year and a half or whatever. So he did, and the owner kind of agreed to a term and ended up like you know $10,000 or whatever it was for the whole six months. And so I told Lamois, and he said, let's do it. So Lamois hadn't even seen the place and gave me the approval on it. So I, I took it over, and um, I had all the gear shipped in, set it all up. And so when Lamois walked, came back to New Orleans, he he hadn't seen the building or the setup, and so he came in and he was just blown away because I, I'd taken the studio and turned it into a, a little bit of a swamp and gone to the swamp, got swamp moss and got hippie tie-dyes and, you know, made it really kind of like the Neville Brothers are all about tie-dye and, yeah. you know, they're they're in you know, the Grateful Dead and all that type of stuff. So I, I ran with that, and so he really dug the way it looked. And, you know, because, uh, you know, usually in studios, it's very intimidating, all the gear, and you walk in there and, but if you walk into a cool atmosphere, you know, it, it 
it just makes you feel at home type of thing. So oh, yeah. I had kind of been doing that as a kid in the basement with posters and black lights. And so I just kind of continued. You just re- recreated um, your basement, huh? Exactly. So, uh, and so it was kind of a cool place to make the record. So, so yeah, so that's how. Uh, Did you know uh, that yeah. others had done this sort of thing or, or was this just, you know, I mean, there's studios all over the world, especially in the larger metropolises. And uh, certainly right. by the, by the mid eighties, you know, even in suburbs, you know, you can go down the street and find somebody's, uh, somebody's studio. But, uh, you know, this right. is, this is definitely unique. Uh, and, and something that, again, just keeps coming up in the book, all these really special, unique places, which, I mean, once you, you kind of think about it, you go, well, well, of course artists would gravitate to something like this. Um, did you hear about other people doing this? I mean, was this a, a thing that something like Frank Sinatra or somebody like that, you know, started? Or did you, did you just go, no, this, this just seems like the natural thing to do? Yeah, I I wasn't aware of it that anybody else was doing it, and so I was just kind of uh, going by you know sheer <laughs> you know just dreaming things up as I was going kind of thing. So yeah, uh, and I, also it, a little more it, of a European model too, because you know uh, you know the Stones yeah, would yeah. do that this sort of thing. I mean, exactly. Obviously, yeah. you know Led Zeppelin in the castles and uh, you yeah, know things exactly. like that. But that you know, it wasn't yeah. the usual situation in in America. I think is, is really my point. But you yeah, know, now yeah, now here exactly. you are doing it. Okay, all right. So yeah. uh, so but, so we 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 got we gotten the Bob Dylan uh, mansion, and so I had mentioned the book to Bob. I said, what do you think about recording this way? And he goes, oh, I did this with the band, you know, back in the 60s. And so, oh, yeah. you know, so he was, that, he, was yeah. used, he, he was used to it from then. So I thought it was like a new thing, but he already kind of already been around that way. Uh, so I, I thought that was a cool, cool thing for him to say. Oh, yeah. But you guys didn't record at M. Court. No, no. It was made in a house on Sonyat Street in uh, in New Orleans, in the Garden District. Yeah. So why did you why did you leave Emla? Was it just the the lease was up and time to go? Or yeah, the lease the lease was up, and we just wanted a, a like a a more intimate kind of place for him because this was like on the main boulevard, and it was it was kind of wasn't that it was loud, but the lease was up, and we just wanted to see if we can find. A more interesting place for Bob to work in. Okay, okay. Beautiful Victorian mansion worked out perfect. And that was on Sonyet Street. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so you guys start working on uh, on the new album, uh, which would become 1989's Oh Mercy. Uh, yeah. And you're the guy that gets Bob back on a bike uh, since 1966 yeah, yeah. accident on his Triumph Tiger 100. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's. Uh, you know, because like I had a couple of Harleys in the courtyard, and so he walked by them every day. And then just one day, he approaches me and asks me, you know, "Hey, you think you can get me one of those?" And so I said, "Yeah, my friend in Florida has been supplying me with some bikes, and so I got him to send me a little Polaroid of this beautiful 1966 Electra Glide uh, Harley Davidson." And so I showed it to Bob, and he goes, "Get it for me." And so I got it, and so I went on the weekend on our weekend off and I uh, drove to Florida with my girlfriend and we picked that bike up and I brought it back, cleaned it up. It was beautiful. It had the most amazing kind of blue sparkle paint job. And so it was like blue and white. It was like, it looked amazing. So he came and so he really fell in love with it. And I would take him on these little rides every morning, showing him how to get onto the levee and out, out, out to the plantations and stuff like that. So he would continue to ride every day. So you take these little rides and, and so I think it was those rides that made him, you know, think about like what songs we were doing and 
like our approach on it. And so he, he was kind of skeptical in the beginning of, of everything. So it was, a, he was being a little bit hard to work for, but it was like, wasn't until Lanois had a little bit explosion on him where he smashed his dober over his monitor and, you know, uh, cause you know, Bob was just being, um, you know, was being Bob, you know, it's like, he's testing you to see how far he can push you, I guess. And so it, it really, uh, blew Lanois into a rage and he smashed this metal dober over the monitor and, um, Dylan went white and I thought, Oh geez. Okay. Oh, uh, I'm going to go at the end of this project. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You think that's it. And so we ended up, uh, I walked outside and Malcolm Byrne, who was the other engineer at the time, um, he walked out with me. And so, uh, we heard the gate close. And so I went back in the studio and there was the Dobro with a big, huge dent in it laying on the floor and, uh, all the gear was on. So I just turned everything off for the night and, so it was weird because nothing was ever mentioned after that. It's like about Dobro. And before that, Dylan really never said my name in the studio or even acknowledged that I was even in the room And until after that moment. And then he just started talking to me. Hey, Mark, you know, can you get me a bike? And, you know, like, where do, where do we ride around here? And so we, we connected on a motorcycle kind of a brotherhood kind of thing. Yeah. It was kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that that must make you feel real proud that you got you got him back on a bike after uh, gosh twenty. Yeah, years. yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and the, the fact that he loved to ride, so that yeah. was, that made me even happier. You know? So he got to get out there again. All right, so uh, still in uh, in New Orleans, you guys create a third studio in a mansion, and that is Kingsway. Um, which right. isn't a studio anymore, but, y- you know, you can still rent it out. So yeah. t- tell us what made that so special for you guys. Um, right after Bob's Oh Mercy record, I was kind of ready to get out of town. Our whole idea was we were going to go to Mexico and do all this. And then Dan had this friend, Barbara Hoover, who was showing him around, and she worked at the radio station, WWOZ. And so we were walk- I was walking through the French Quarter with her, and I said, wow, look at this mansion that was for sale. I said, that would make a killer studio. She goes, hey, I know the guy in the back. Let me take you back there. And so she took me through the house, and it was just dilapidated. The rugs were just ruined from the roof leaking. And I thought, oh, this place is way too far gone. And so uh, so she went and told Dan that she found this place, and she wanted to take him there. And so Dan says, oh, I'm thinking about buying this place. I said, don't buy it, Dan. It's a, it's a too big of a job. It's a mess. It smells. It's like we're going to get sick in there, you know? Yeah. And so uh, he ended up buying it anyways. Yeah. And that led into like months of, you know, renovating it and getting it just livable kind of thing. And so that turned into a actually quite cool studio where we made a, a, a bunch of cool records out of there. I think a lot of, think, a lot uh, of Canadians come down into, in that, through that way, huh? It's kind of exactly, like a getaway yeah. for them, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was kind of a cool getaway for them to come down and hang out. And I think an, an unknown and, uh, Sarah McLaughlin uh, comes and works. That's there right. As well. Right. That's right. Yeah. 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 She was, she was a friend of um, Pierre Machon, who was her producer, was friends with Dan because Dan produced a record for a band called Luba in Kansas. And so it was, he was friends with Pierre, the keyboard player. And so they ended up um, being friends. And so once we were down there, he invited Pierre down there and he came down and saw how cool it was. And so he ended up bringing this singer he just met, uh, Sarah McLaughlin. And so we gave them a little bit of a a room in the back of the house to work in. And so we had a spare console and tape recorder and stuff. So we just let them work in the back room upstairs. And 
So that was the beginning of uh, Sarah's first record. And so uh, they ended up recording it all there and then finishing it, uh, mixing it somewhere else. But it was that's how it all started. Was was uh, her her kind of coming through there and REM had come through there and mm-hmm. you know I made another record with another brothers and you know, a couple of uh, another solo records for Lanois. And so yeah, so it became a really cool place and it housed everybody. Everybody had their own bedroom and and then the whole studio I put in the parlor, this big huge grand room and so everybody kind of like worked down on the floor uh, in the in the main kind of uh, the control room was the studio. There was no barriers or anything you just worked in the same room with the console and so that's kind of like how i kind of learned how to get sounds without even hearing them and knowing knowledge on how to where to put stuff and, uh it's a, a lot of gorilla recording i call it where you know you, you don't have you don't have time to get sounds you just got to be walk in there and people walk in the room you better be recording that's that's my thing because a lot of these things happen right away and that magic you can't miss that magic which yeah. a lot of people lose that magic you know because they spend days getting sound Tr- trying to so get I don't sound. Get, yeah so you're yeah, ahead, you're yeah. again you're you're ahead of the game you're being intuitive yeah. you are yeah. considering uh what is going to be needed because you're probably very intimate with the room and now the console yeah. is in the same room as the instrumentation which must create its own set of challenges right um Actually, I've got it to work for my benefit because, first of all, communication is amazing because you can just turn around and say yeah. to the bass player, try this part here. Uh, you don't have to push a button or go into another room, into an isolation booth, have them do a part, run around, and then come back in, listen to it. And, oh, that's not the right sound. You can just do it right there. So I thought that was just a time yeah. saver just well, much more by efficient. itself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, way efficient. And so I kind of grew into that kind of working environment. And so where a lot of other engineers can't work that way or they're not comfortable. They, they need the, the isolation room and they need you know everything, you know, blocked off. I do the opposite. I keep all the band members all in the same room, even with the drummer. And then I isolate guitar amps in other rooms and stuff like that. So all those are isolated. And so you get a better performance out of people being all in the same room, looking at each other and working musically off of each other. So, yeah, so it, 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 it so, became... So it's a much more collaborative and creative environment. Uh, exactly, to, yeah. For, for the musicians themselves. Yeah. And again, you know, a big part of our audience are musicians and, and gearheads and things like that. But, you know, a big portion of our audience doesn't know anything about the actual process. Um, so right. just a, a little education. You know, when you have all these instruments in the same room, especially drums, you know, you're going to have the bleed from microphones that are picking up... Uh, the various instruments, but I think you solved that by picking rooms that had high ceilings. Is that, is that right? That's correct. Yeah. I found that if I record in a room that has high ceilings, the drum, the leakage that goes into the drum mics is minimal. And it's like, it's a ghost. You, you would never be able to hear it with all the other instrumentation on top. Mm-hmm. So it allows you to kind of like, uh, uh, like if you work in a room that's got sh- small ceilings, there's nowhere else for the sound to go but into those mics so with the high ceiling the sound goes up and takes longer to come down and dissipate and kind of get into it so it, sometimes it's a little more reverberant because it's a bigger room but a lot of it is to do with the sound of what you're getting for that record and it becomes the sound of the record you know so it's uh, i use the room as a benefit you know so where usually if you're in a room where it's low ceilings really dead 
you only get one sound where I have multiple choices now. So it's a, it's a pretty interesting way that I work. Was that the case with most of these unique facilities that we'll talk about today that we, we've already started to talk about? Um, what, what, did they all kind of have that sort of uh, basic construction uh, architecturally? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's that's what I always look for is at least a room with a high ceiling that I can kind of you know, working with everybody. And I, I like a nice big room. And so I'll even go into like sound stages that are quite dead sounding, but you can put everybody all in the room and you can have a stand up bass player play right beside the drummer and you don't have any leakage once you solo the, the bass. And it's like, it's super clear because ceiling height is so big and the rumors are so dense, mm-hmm. you know, so you get these certain techniques from different rooms. So, uh, but usually I isolate a base amp and stuff like that in another room. So you have like an isolation that if the certain gets into the drum, uh, to the bass mic or if it's a stand-up bass or, or that kind of thing. So, But electrics are usually, you know, go DI yeah, and then you run yeah, an amp. Yeah, so, yeah, you don't have to worry yeah. about that. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. Uh, uh, without going too deep, uh, you also, when you're checking a place out, you carry, I, I, I believe, a, a guitar pickup. Is that right? Or a meter to test the hum right yeah 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 so the electric just the just the ambient electric hum that exists in the building yeah if that's the main thing that you want to pick a location that doesn't have any problems for recording guitar tube amps and and tube microphones and because sometimes you'll get a taxi signal that will the taxi will drive by and it'll come through your guitar amp or it kind of thing so and then also if there's big um transformers outside of the building you're just going to get a, a, yeah. a hum all the time mm-hmm. so half the job of, of recording is is being able to get clean signal and and getting you know the to tape a nice sound so uh, i developed this technique where i would drag a um acoustic guitar pickup in a battery powered pv amp and i drag the pickup along the floor and you'd oh well there's a big hum there don't put an amp there and, and so usually it's like underneath uh the floor there's like a set of uh fluorescent lights or something in there so you know you know how to i know how to find where the quiet spots are in the room especially when you're using a single coil pickup in in the tube amp uh sometimes you got to like turn the guitar and find the quiet spot in the room and then so you got to know how to uh find all these things to get your best signal for recording because you can't have the amp humming as these guys playing, sometimes the hum is louder than the actual signal. So you you got to you got to know how to right. kind of clear that up and ground lifts and you know there's all kinds of electrical things that you need to know about grounding and stuff like that. So I had to learn my lesson the hard way, you know. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. And once you make that mistake once, you'll never do it again. Uh, exactly. Uh, and I got to ask, uh, yeah, w- one more uh, diggers uh, about gear, and that's you guys installed an API board in there. And without going too deep, it's just a you know a hot, uh, expensive uh, mix board, but uh, they can get very hot. So you installed a custom AC system into the API board itself. Yeah. So I had like these tubes that actually we had. The, the API old desks all had like fake wood, plastic wood on the outside. Yeah. It looked really ugly and the armrest was like, you know, all torn up and vinyl and stuff. So we had a beautiful mahogany cabinet made for this API desk. And so I put little slots in the top of the desk right above the meters. And I had those running to tubes down to oxygen tanks. And so I had it all running off this pedal. 
like a volume pedal. So as, as it's getting late and you just kind of give yourself a little blast of oxygen and it's kind of revives you and you kind of like, you get like a, you know, an, another hour of like, you know, energy. Yeah. Kind of like, yeah. So, That's yeah. great. That's yeah. great. I'm going to insist uh, uh, that for any other studio that I work on in <laughs> yeah, the future. Exactly. This is better. And uh, uh, in all deference to, uh, to a friend of the show, Paul Wolf, who owned API at the time, right, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, a great board. Uh, just uh, you know, uh, uh, maybe maybe think about uh, installing uh, AC uh, in uh, and oxygen in in the future. So uh, that's exactly. great. So um, uh, you you also did uh, you did some work with REM there in NOLA. Uh, and uh, there's this great story of Bill Barry uh from the book. Yeah, just run us through uh that because man, uh, the guy's lucky to be alive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. New Orleans is kind of a, you know, it's a party atmosphere town. So people go missing quickly there. So, you know, just walk out of the door of the studio and you're, you're like, you're almost right on Bourbon Street. And so, you know, Bill had kind of gone out after the session and gotten a little bit too, too tanked and he was drunk walking around the French Quarter. And, you know, the French Quarter can be dangerous if you walk down the wrong street where it's dark and whatever. And uh, certain people prey on, on tourists to, to mug them and stuff. So, he ended up with like a gun in his face and, you know, they took his wallet and all of his ID and, you know, we got, got out of there. And so then he went to go to his hotel room. Yeah. Yeah. So he got to his hotel room and then, um, he got into his room, but somehow in the middle of the night, he got up and he ended up going into the room across the hall. And so he woke up in the morning and with two, with more guns in his face, the New Orleans police department had drawn their guns and was like waking him up with the guns in his face saying, who are you and what you are? Or like, what are you doing uh, you in, get this in this room? room? Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so he said, you know, I'm Bill Barry from you know, R.E.M. And so uh, they said, sure you yeah, are. Show us your ID. Right, right. Oh, uh, he got stolen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He had no ID. He was listed in the alias name, you know, Mickey Mouse or whatever. Yeah, he was yeah, using yeah, those yeah. And so, so crazy, yeah. So, uh, yeah, it was adventure after adventure, you know. Things oh, always yeah. were popping. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. And you also worked with Iggy Pop on American Caesar. That was that there at Kingsway. Yep, yep. That one was at, at Kingsway, and so uh, he had heard a record uh, that I uh, made with a guy called Chris Whitley, and so uh, that was produced by this guy Malcolm Byrne, who was kind of like one of our team members. He liked that record, and he wanted to, for us to make a record for him. So he came to New Orleans, and he brought his Siamese cat, and he brought his wife, and you know, so we we brought his, his uh, road band in, and. So, uh, yeah, his, wife, making... his wife, Suchi at the time, which is, uh, the original China girl. That's right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. He wrote that song, China girl, and then gave it to David Bowie and Bowie kind of had a big hit with it. Right. So, Oh, oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Very big. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, so, so you, you worked on that. I, I think Avenue B you also worked on too, but I don't think you did that yeah. one at Kingsway. Right. No, no, we did that in New York city yeah. in a, uh, rehearsal spot. Yeah. Yeah. All yeah. right. So let's get out of New Orleans. So uh, we've established you, you, okay. now you, you built three unique studios in New Orleans. You, uh, yeah. uh you've brought all these wonderful artists in and now you guys, I, I'm going to try to move through some of this a little quickly. You go to Cabo San Lucas and you create what's yeah. called the birdhouse and then yeah. count Dracula down the street. Tell us a little bit yeah. about those two. Um, okay, so the birdhouse was uh, a friend of ours, Ken, had had this house that he had built into the rocks of the mountain. So all the walls were all natural rock. 
and then you just had to pull off a roof with just one of those grass roofs that you see in the Caribbean all the time. Like, yeah, you know, for, yeah, like yeah. The, Palapa, yeah. Mm. And so that was the roof, and then everything else was open to to the air, and so you had plate glass windows that looked out over the Sierra Cortez. Birds would fly in all the time, and there was all kinds of insects and scorpions and centipedes, and so we were dealing, we were living in nature, and, but I had brought the whole studio down and set it up in this kind of like, almost like cave type atmosphere. And so we ended up working there with the band for six months. Uh, and we came out with a lot of kind of instrumental music that Lamois was going to make an instrumental record with. And then once our time was up there, we moved to the other coast to this beautiful little town called Todos Santos. And yeah. so um, I met this girl, Chia Rafelson, who her mother had a beautiful restaurant there called Cafe Santa Fe. And she uh, she said, there's this cool building called Castle Dracula. Yeah. And it's like an old kind of like, uh, um, uh, I forget what it was. It was like, it was an old, one of the oldest buildings in this town. So it, it was like a sugary refinery kind of uh, place where the uh, owner would live kind of thing. So we we ended up renting that place and we I did a setup in there. And so that was really cool. And this town is really beautiful. It's like all full of artists and writers and you know people escaping the world kind of thing so it ended up being a perfect little spot for us to kind of like um kind of listen to what we had done at the birdhouse and get everything back into shape kind of thing so that was uh, only with daniel lamois music that we were there with and so i was also producing a record for the tragically hip at the same time so i had to leave to make to record it and i made the record in new orleans and yeah. then i came came back to mexico and and I had to leave again to mix their record in Montreal kind of thing. So so I was in and out of Mexico quite a bit in those days. Uh, and then your the, the world tour continues. Uh, the world tour of studios continues. And into yeah. our hometown here in San Francisco with uh, Bella Vista in the Mission District. Uh, this is just my, one of my favorite stories in the book. You have Billy Gibbons do a little schooling on uh, yeah. a guitarist named Ian Moore you're producing. Yeah, yeah. So Ian, you know, he was like, you can't get me a guitar sound. I said, it doesn't come from me, man. It comes from a guitar player. That's what I've noticed. And so he's like, no. And he's calling all these people. and They're telling us all these things you got to do to get the best sounds and stuff like that. And so Billy Gibbons happened to be, uh, he likes old cars and custom cars and motorcycles. And so he just happened to be in town picking up like this, like a beautiful old 36 uh, Ford kind of uh um, custom car he had just built. And yeah, like, so, something out of purple. a ZZ Top uh, video, right? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah, yeah, one of those kind of cars. And so he pulled it in, and we checked it out, and he had a killer stereo, and it was amazing. And so I, I asked him to come up to the studio, and it was in this old warehouse in the Mission District in San Francisco. And so he pulled his car, and we had like a roll-up door, and you could pull five cars, and we had a bunch of motorcycles in there. And so he loved the fact that we kind of had like a little and motorcycle and car community going on in there too. And so I invited him up to the studio and I said, you know, we got this hundred watt Marshall amp and a head and a 50 watt Marshall head. And then this Marshall cabinet. And I said, you know, what's like, you know, the killer combination. He goes, well, the 50 watt head plexi is the one to go for and plug it into this 410 bottom cabinet. And, and so he plugs in, Ian's guitar and plugs it in. We set it all up and he, he plays it and it sounds amazing. And then Ian takes the same guitar through the same rig and I record him and it doesn't sound good at all. Mm. And so Ian goes, well, what are you doing? He goes, 
it's all in the touch. It's like soft touch. It's a, you know, like it's, it's like if you grind it in, it's a harder sound. But if you if you have a softer touch on the strings, and you just kind of like it, you can get a warmer sound. And so uh, I think that was kind of a eye opener for Ian at the time. Did so, he did he learn he, the lesson? He learned the lesson, yes, well. So <laughs> and it ended up we got that sound on the record, and the record's his guitar tone was like amazing. So awesome. it was great. Awesome. Hey, whatever yeah. works, man, whatever works. Exactly. Uh, yeah. e- even if you got to call the big guns in. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Totally. All right. All right. Down to Southern California, you move out to Oxnard where you convert yep. an old Hispanic porn theater into a world-class studio that will produce Grammys, including album of the year, time out of mind. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. So uh, I was, you know, on a trip, I was driving back to Frisco, going up uh, highway one and i came through this little mexican town called oxnard it was kind of run down and i saw this old theater with a you know uh, for rent for lease sign on it and so um i told them yeah, it's all I, agriculture out there yeah 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 it's all agriculture it's very you know a lot of um migrant workers yep, and, yep. and and it's very spanish and so you feel like you're in mexico and so uh I told Lamwa I saw this really cool theater for rent, you know, going coming up the coast. And so he took a drive with Gary Gersh, listened to his record or whatever one day, and he saw it. And so he's, he said, uh, well, if you want to get it, uh, I'll begin to kind of partner up with you again, and we'll, uh, I'll supply the gear, and you, you supply the location. So I sent my assistant down, and he cleared all the seats out and painted the whole inside black and built a deck on the whole, in, uh, whole middle section, and we left seats in the front because there was a stage and a screen still there. And he left seats at the back and we used those as guitar stands. And so it was like this really amazing place. And I had the, the console right in the middle and all the gear was set up all around it. And we had grand pianos and organs. And the cool thing about it is everything was always mic'd all the time. So if you go over to the piano, I can press record and you're recording. And if you go to the organ, bang. So there's no there's no wait time. No delay. Up. No and delay. Immediate no inspiration. Delay. And when, inst- when the muse yeah. arrives, you're ready to record. Exactly. So it was it was kind of a playground for for musicians and you know for Dylan to walk in there and for me to be able to record the piano as he's trying out his songs. So I'm capturing these early ideas and those are the important ones that you you're very able to capture that stuff as it's happening and being developed and stuff like that. So. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a big tool of mine, being able to kind of get it before people know they're they're doing it, kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. So how did you how did you get Bob to get out there uh, to the teatro? Uh, Bob lived kind of like Malibu, Point Dune area, and he he drove this old uh, '80s pickup truck up every day. It was it was kind of funny because uh, he drive this pickup truck, and usually he's got security, and you know it's like he doesn't travel alone, but. He traveled alone up to Oxnard because he knew it was like nobody, nobody would know nobody who bothered. he was. Right, he was he was coming yeah, into exactly. the migrant town uh, to yeah. to check on the fruit pickers or something like that. That's what most people would think, but he'd pull up into the studio and uh, nobody nobody give him a hard time because you know that that is a story in the book. Also, is that I, I think when you guys were in Nola, uh, his motorcycle that you had bought for him kind of died one day. And he got surrounded with, yep. by, by people immediately. 
And yeah, exactly. I, I can't imagine that that is not fun for anybody, especially in that right. situation when you're dealing with that level of fame. Uh, you know, people just want a piece of you. And, uh, you yeah. know, he probably was just freaked out. I think you went and saved him and, and got him out of there. But uh, but yeah, so something yeah, yeah. like this must have been really nice for him to feel kind of normal. Yeah. Uh, you know, just drive his pickup, yeah. get up every morning, drive on over to Oxnard, which uh, for those who don't know the geography, if you're in Malibu, which is where Bob lives, uh, you, you just go north a little bit, and then, uh, you know, uh, at uh, Fort Huachuca, you, uh, you you know, bang a right, and you're in Oxnard about uh, 15 minutes yep. later. So, it, you know, it's about a 35, 45-minute uh, drive uh, from there. So that must have been pretty nice for, for him. So so you also yep. did some rather interesting things in that studio. You, you added video. Uh, you you brought in I think yep. balloons or these like weather balloons and things like that. They really create a very very unique space. Yeah, it's funny because it was it was a time before video projectors were really you know cost effective. So video projectors were expensive. So I went with the route of sixteen millimeter uh, school projectors. You know the projectors yeah, you get yeah, in your yeah, yeah. school or whatever. And I just find all these old movies and. The, and so I had this like home. Depot that, that's that's, kind of that's only for us old guys. But yeah, yeah, the old uh, yeah. you know, actual film on a reel that's yeah. winding to another reel, going through a light source that is projecting it yeah. out. <laughs> so it's exactly. really old school. So I had I had six of those, so I was able to project six different movies all at the same time. So usually after recording and playback, I would kind of do like this kind of video montage of all these kind of crazy movies that you know like there was like a driver's education movie and then this like old russian film that i had found so like this car is driving around miami and like in the days of the 60s and it's all like this colored technicolor looking and then the russian film comes on and the guy's face comes out of the road at you and so it was quite psychedelic and quite cool you know that every every time you we did a playback i would do kind of like a, a little kind of uh a light um, projection back for it to listen to. Yeah. So, so again, it's just creating this, you know, really warm and unique atmosphere that would obviously get the juices flowing for any creative mind. Uh, exactly. In, yeah. in that sort of environment. Um, so back to Time Out of Mind, because this is a, a huge album. You know, we talked a little bit about it at the top uh, of the show here and that, uh, what Bob was going for was he, he wanted a, a unique sound. He wanted to, to try to uh, capture an old sound, actually. It was, uh, yeah, exactly. uh, you know, the old 1930s sort of, of sound, and you were able to, to do that. Was it because you had this familiarity with some of these old blues guys that you started your career with? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'd known, like, how those records sounded. And so, you know, every day that he'd drive up in his pickup truck to Oxnard, you would be able to tune into this radio station that only played those old blues, little Walter and, you know, um, muddy waters. And, and he was infatuated, like, why do those records sound so great? Yeah. And so he said, like, why can't my record sound like that? I said, it can, I just have to approach it from a certain angle using older microphones and, you know, and to taking overdrive in his vocal through a little amp and through a little distortion pedal made the, like those Helen Wolf records, you know, like, cause he's overloading the sound of those, those microphones in those days. Cause the guy was such a loud singer. So you get like, you know, like, ah, 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 you know, like you get that. <laughs> Helen Wolf. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Yeah. Helen Wolf. Yeah. So. so, yeah. So I took that approach. And so I always had like a amp vocal and I always had his clean vocal. And he'd always be continually asking me, 
uh, what's the percentage of uh, the vocal? Are we, and I'd say, oh, we're 60, 40 clean. And he goes, no, make it 50, 50. You want it to half dirt, half clean. And so a lot of the vocal sounds on time out of mind sound that way because of the way I was treating them through this kind of little vocal amp. So it's kind of crazy. It's an amazing sounding uh, record. And of course it goes on to win uh, Grammy's album of the year. Yeah. And uh, when Bob goes up to uh, grab his award, which I think he had just played a song, uh, if I remember yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, I was in the truck mixing it. So it was like oh, a, you were, oh, you were out in the truck. Well, uh, yeah. you, you got special mention uh, in his acceptance speech. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's funny, later on that night, we're at the Sony party. He goes, hey, Mark, uh, do you hear? I said your name on TV. <laughs> <laughs> so he thought it was kind of cool. Yeah, that must have been a real highlight for you to uh, to put that album yeah. together. Yeah, yeah. You you also yeah. had Willie Nelson's nineteen ninety eight album not only recorded there, but had the name of the album, uh, the name of your studio, right? Right. Yeah, called Teatro. Uh, so so looking back, is this your favorite place? Uh, yeah, I think sound wise and work wise, I think that was one of the best studios that a lot of amazing things came out of and then you know after that it became there was one other studio after that that was called the paramore that was really yeah uh, we'll talk about that in a minute but 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 it just seems like you know if you could go back and keep one place it would be teatro yeah I, i would say so and tragically it closes for what seems like the silliest of reasons it does yeah and it's just you know like I was trying to honor our deal, six months to six months. And With Lanois, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Daniel Lanois used the whole time of uh, the last year. And I said, look, I'm short on cash. Can you help me out? And he said, no, that's not our deal. He said, it's, uh, it's uh, and he was supposed to supply the places and I supply the gear. And I said, yeah, but, you know, like if uh, I don't get my six months in to create a revenue to pay for the bills, it doesn't work. And so you've taken the whole year. And I've had to pay out of pocket. The, the money I've been making is just covering my bills. And so I need your help. And he said, nope. And so I said, all right, well, that's going to close this portion of our thing. And so after that, we never worked for 10 years again. And so, yeah. And so, yeah, so uh, it's a shame, but it, it's, it's just the way it happened. Yeah, yeah. Before we leave the teatro, there, there was one other story I just absolutely loved in the book, and that was the respect uh, for John Frusciante of the Chili Peppers, uh, who yeah. had just returned uh, to the band after, you know, a horrible uh, heroin addiction and coming clean and, uh, you know, uh, rehab and all of that. And I think, you know, you say that he's like one of the most amazing guitarists you've ever seen in your life. Yeah. It's like he. He can't go to the store and buy something out of the store or pay his rent. And he's like, he's kind of handicapped in that way, but he's maintained his musical chops that, um, you know, like a, a, I've seen a lot of amazing guitar players in my life, but I've never seen oh, anybody yeah, play sure like that. that oh. And on the show, it wasn't like he couldn't even turn his amp on. He's like, my amp don't work. And like, I said, well, here, turn it on, <laughs> turn it on. And then he just fired up like it was like, wow that just fired the band up hearing that sound that he was getting out of the teatro. And so it was like, they were pumped, you know, like to play with him again. So I think that was an exciting period for them. 
Yeah, yeah. Frusciante uh, with the chilies is 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 definitely my favorite uh, period uh, uh, yeah. of those guys. So so the teatro closes. Uh, you move over to uh, the Silver Lake area in L.A., yeah. which is just starting to become a hipster land. It's now total hipster land over yeah. there. Yeah, and yeah. and you grab totally. uh, an old uh, like Hollywood mansion that you call the Paramore Studios. Yeah, I just happened to be riding by there one day, and it's on the street called Mitchell Turina. It's the steepest hill in L.A. And so you go up this huge hill, and right at the very top of the hill is like this set of gates that kind of go into this property. And they were open, and I just kind of drove in there, and there was this mansion. It was like it looked amazing. And it had this huge Olympic-sized pool with a marble lining all the way around it. And, and it was like a 22-room mansion. And what it was is um, it was originally owned by this silent screen star and and he married this other woman daisy canfield so the guy's name was antonio marino and he was like the first latin lover of the screen before rudolph valentino uh-huh. and so he married a woman daisy canfield the doheny canfields that discovered the oil in la so her parents built this mega mansion for their wedding kind of thing and so they both had like a weird mysterious death where they drove off mulholland and died Together, a whole crazy Hollywood story. Yeah, I think it was um, his wife had driven off, and then he died a mysterious death or some some one of those Hollywood tales, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, so then these nuns took it over, and they ran this like uh, commentary for uh, bad girls kind of thing for um, <laughs> girls kind of like rehab kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. yeah. And so that went on all the way until that big earthquake. I think it was ninety four uh-huh. when they had. Yeah, the Northridge uh, uh, yeah. earthquake. Uh-huh. So they had to close it down. And so then this woman, Dana Hollister, ended up buying it from these nuns. And so she turned it into like this kind of location for movies and stuff. So I met with her when I drove through the gates. And she said, oh, like the, she's been doing all this filming, but she ran over her film time there. You're only allowed to film so many days at a residential place. So she was using that to pay all of her bills. But now that was over, she couldn't film anymore. So I said, hey, well, let me make a couple of records here. I got five records lined up. Let me make them in here. And she let me do it. And I moved in there and I was there for about three years. And so I made a record with Lucinda Williams called uh, World Without Tears. And I invited Fiona Apple in there and Sarah McLaughlin and so it was kind of like a girls' camp for a while. It was pretty amazing. Yeah. In fact, one of my favorite stories uh, is your working with Lucinda Williams because this is how I'd like to work. I mean, first, the atmosphere you've created. I love the ease of her coming in, grabbing a coffee, getting to work, uh, and then a great meal with plenty of wine uh, before going yeah. back to listen to the day's mix. Yeah, exactly. Is that what yeah, you hope that. for? with every artist uh, that they feel when, when, when they work for you? It's been definitely a, uh, a routine that I've been holding over the years that, but with Lucinda, it was like, we only had a small window and we only record 15 minutes a day because she wanted a couple of glasses of Grand Marnier as soon as she walked in. Then we do three takes and then of the same song. Then we would go and have dinner cause she came in late. And so it was a bizarre kind of event that led to an amazing record. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 No. 
All right. Of course, of course, we could go on with uh, Cheryl Crow, Eddie Vedder, yep. the tragically yep. hip, Robert Plant, Joni Mitchell. Uh, but we'd be here all day, uh, and it's all in yeah. the book. Let's talk just a little about Tom Waits. Uh, you give right. some great stories about uh, this eccentric and how he thinks and communicates when he hears something. Exactly, yeah. Tom's a, a quite the character to work for because, you know, you have to in- interpretate what he's thinking kind of a lot. So, you know, as you're listening back to one of the songs, he'll say, you know, put a little more hair on that vocal. <laughs> you think, oh, Put a little more hair on it. What does yeah, that sure. mean? Like, you know, like, make it uh, make it louder. Where's the Where's the hair button? <laughs> where's the hair button? Does that make you know? So, and then you know, you'd say drums sound a little beige. I'm like, beige is bad. No, no, no. I don't like. We beige. want color. We so want some sort of color. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so, so yeah. So it was it was you know a lot of that, and so and just the way he works, it's a it's a it's a fun way to see him kind of developed uh, how he kind of like works in the studio and um so he kind of goes around the room testing all the different things and so this is the first time he'd ever been able to record that way because usually he's got to run out uh, go out into the performance area try a piano run back into the control room listen to it no that's not it go back out onto the floor try a shaker oh no that ain't it go back in listen to it and, you know it's just this back and forth thing so this way, we're working in the same room with Conti. He's listening to the playback. He's able to walk up to the piano, play it. No, it doesn't work. And then he'll go to the shaker pod, and he's like, oh, yeah, that works. Let's use that. And so I think it was exciting for him to kind of work that way. Yeah, yeah. So you also spent time not just in America, but you've done a lot of great work uh, around the world, you know, Australia, uh, in Byron yeah. Bay, East Berlin. Um, the one I, I want to talk about is you got stiffed by Mumford & Sons, but no. you, you were the very last to ever record at Olympic Studios in London. Exactly. Yeah, I think that alone is worth them that I didn't get paid. <laughs> yeah, and I think you, you beat you too by about two hours. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. They left at midnight, and I I pulled out around four in the morning. So yeah, it was kind of crazy to be the last ones in there. Yeah. And a shame that it turned into like a grocery store. You know, yeah. like this iconic place, and now um, that's a grocery store. Wow. Yeah, lost forever. Uh, now. Yeah. All right. Well, you know, again, we could do this all day, but I, I got to yeah. ask about one last one, and and we, we oh, touched okay, on okay. it at the top, and that's uh, 2010's Lenoise by uh, another Canadian, Neil Young. Uh, that must have yep. been a dream for you. And and I just love the story about how you blew him away with the tone that you got uh, out of Blackie. It sounds like that's the tone that just opens up the album with the first track, Walk With Me, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, so um, it was always my dream to make a record with Neil Young, but I always kind of knew that it was impossible because he kind of has his own crew and he only works, you know, he, he's his own producer and he, he, there was no way to get a window in there until he saw these videos from this band called Black Dub, which was Daniel Lamont's band with Trixie Whitley singing. So he liked the idea of each song being videoed and that's the performance. So uh, at the time, Dan and Neil had the same manager. So uh, Elliot Roberts had shown Neil these little videos, and he goes, well, I want to do a record like that, where they film every take. And, and so they ended up talking, and Dan said, I'll, I'll do it for you. You know, and, and then um, Neil said, well, it's just an acoustic record. I'll just, just do, like, acoustic songs. <laughs> um, so, so it's it not, an, up, it's not know, an acoustic it's, record. <laughs> it's not an acoustic record. <laughs> But it's a one-man record. 
Yeah. And you know, all those sounds are him, are the dubs of him, and kind of like a, you know, all these treatments that I use. You know, I always thought like, how am I ever going to top any of those Neil Young guitar sounds? And um, I ended up kind of coming up with this technique by using sub harmonizers on his guitar that made it sound like thunder, and you could just feel the whole room shake. And so when he hit the chord in the whole room, and he felt the vibrations of the sub going through his body, he's like, what the hell is that? You know, like he never felt that before. So I think by by that alone, I think um, I think I, I impressed him with, with the, the kind of first sound on the record. Yeah, and he he made you uh, recreate it live because yeah. uh, his guys couldn't get that sound, right? Exactly. He wanted me to come on the road with him and teach his guys how to get that sound. And he rented a um, a theater in uh, L.A. called the Wiltern, which is a big yeah. kind of venue. And so they set up the PA in there and invited me over there. And um, and I got there, and so they had this new uh, French PA and this new digital desk in there. They were all trying out, and uh, I go. I need 16 subwoofers aside, you know, to, to get the sound. And they're like, well, it's an acoustic show. We're not going to give you 16 <laughs> subs aside. And I said, I need. And so the next day I had 16 subs aside. Because Neil said, give him what he wants. And right. So, and so, so, yeah, so I went out on the road with him and um, shook a lot of these places. That <laughs> normally thinking that you're going to an acoustic show and then suddenly you're getting like subsonic, you know, frequencies kind of shaking the whole room. It's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. I think I think you even heard like an audience member walk out uh, one of these shows, going, "God, I've never heard anything like that before." Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it shocked a lot of people too. <laughs> Again, another Grammy uh, uh, record uh, yeah. you you helped to create. So, yeah, I purposely left off people like Marianne Faithful, Emmy Lou Harris, Joni yeah. Mitchell, Ricky Lee Jones. Um, they're all in the book. Uh, again, listeners, yeah. go grab it and read it for yourself. But uh, you know, it seems like you, you really have a great life working uh, with real quality artists, uh, almost all uh, who are destined to be a part of the long history of these times in this music. You know, my, my last question was, what's your secret? But I think we've kind of figured it out here in our talk today. Exactly. You've just yeah, given yeah, away yeah. the story. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's okay. Yeah. But hopefully people will buy the book because there's ten, a lot more stories in the book that are. Oh yeah. Uh, like yeah. You, you yeah. need to find out about uh, Tom Waits and yeah. and Neil and all yeah. of that. Oh, so, yeah, all, so. Know, all that. So you know, just real quickly, because you know, you brought it up at the beginning, and and it was something I didn't think about until. But you know, we are in a digital world. Do, do you miss the analog world, or can you make the digital world sound like the analog world? I, I know they're still striving to do that. But, you know, where, where do you think we are uh, uh, out there? Um, I think it's an interesting time. I dig uh, what's going on, like, uh, digitally these days. And um, I work kind of still in an analog world in a way that it's a digital machine, but it works just like an analog machine. And it's called the IZ radar. Yeah. And so it gives you it's in a, That's the format. That's mentioned the book exactly. over and over again, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so, yeah, so I still kind of work old style but with new technology so i think it, it helps me work faster than a screen and a mouse and mousing around like that, yeah. uh, the, as that the best of both worlds all right all right last question how was it writing the book with your own brother chris howard um it was good because he encouraged me a lot you know every chapter was he just wow this is great and 
he, yeah, I think that kind of boosting is was the way to get it out of me. And um, you know, in the beginning, we didn't know what we had and, until it was all kind of done. So yeah, so I think it was it was uh, it was an amazing thing for me to have you know somebody you know a family member be so positive and push you to kind of kind of keep it going kind of thing. So mm-hmm. it, it doesn't get any better than that, I think. No, 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 no. I'm I'm glad you did. I, I had a lot of fun reading yeah. it. I'm sure all of our listeners will have a great time reading it. There's just a ton okay. of stories uh, and uh, and some great insight uh, in how to how to make records. So, Mark Howard, yeah. thanks so much for spending time with us today on Deeper Digs and Rock. All right. Well, thanks again for having me, and it was uh, it was fun talking with you. Let me tell you, we just scratched the surface. All can be found in his book, Listen Up, Recording Music with Bob Dylan, Neil Young, U2, R.E.M., The Tragically Hip, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Tom Waits, and so many more. Out now, wherever you find your reading materials. While I didn't delve too deeply into this particular aspect of the book, Mark does discuss the equipment he used and some of the techniques he employed. So it's it's good for the musician or aspiring engineer, and not just the history and cultural buff. Hearing all the rock star quirks is certainly cool, but getting the gear used is pretty awesome as well. I really enjoy talking to people like Mark uh, or our friend Shelly Yakis, or if I could, uh, I'd love to have talked to the dearly departed Tom Dowd. The guys really working the dials in partnership with names like Lanois, Iovine, or Wexler as producers. I'm not sure they get the recognition they deserve, so it's an honor to help get these stories out. As you heard, Mark just finished uh, his treatments for a terrible uh, melanoma cancer scare. We are so glad he was able to get on a new uh, immunotherapy drug that was able to kill the disease. We look forward to hearing what Mark has in store for us now that he is back up and running at producer's pace. So this week, instead of uh, my usual takeaway, I want to give a shout out to... uh, someone in the Pantheon family going through this dreadful disease themselves. Uh, One of my partners uh, and our senior sound designer uh, is a name you probably don't know, um, but he is a guy who's been making all of us here at Pantheon sound so incredibly professional all these years. Um, We kind of grew up together. Uh, He's someone I have known for 40 years, and his name is Jerry Danielson. Jerry's wife, Angela, was stricken with breast cancer several years ago. Um, She beat it once, but it reappeared uh, two years ago. And unfortunately, uh, dear listeners, unlike Mark, 
her prognosis isn't very good. Um, I just want to give a shout out to Angela and Jerry for keeping it all going under these uh, terrible times. She has fought bravely and with every ounce of strength. I will always remember the fuck cancer tour the two of them did uh, over the last two years. It was awesome to watch and actually um, uh, be a part of on, on one of those uh, one of those trips. Anyway, send all your love and energy this week to Angela and Jerry for me. And if you feel up to it, donate to the American Cancer Society in honor of them. All right. Sorry to end on such a dissonant note, but sometimes life just throws something that you have to share or it will eat you up. Um, and I just wanted to share uh, this with, with all of you. We will, we will pick back up next week uh, where we will be diving into the life of Warren Zevon with author Chad Cushing's. Angela, Jerry, this is for you. Keep up the rockin'. Baby, see how I've been living Velvet curtains on the windows too Keep the bright and unforgiving Life from shining through Baby, I remember all the things we did when we slept together in the blue behind your eyelids, baby Sweet baby Deeper Digs in Rock Produced and hosted by Kristen Swain All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at www.pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you listen to great podcasts. All songs can be found for purchase on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please purchase these great and important tracks. Find us on Facebook at The RNRAP. We are on Instagram at RNR Archaeology. Tweet us at R&R Archaeology.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 